Hello, Nexus Church family, to our message in the series of the book of Haggai. Today, we are beginning this series with a look at really God's vision. That's really the title of today's message is God's vision. Where is it? How do we find it? And honestly, as we will find today, how we lose it. And so today, as we begin this series, it's important to understand who this book was written to. I'm not going to go into details. I, you can go online and find all sorts of commentaries about the time that this was written. But just as a general overview, this book was written to people who had just come back from slavery in Babylon. They'd been there for nearly 70 years. There wasn't too many people who had remembered the old Israel that once was. They came back to a city that was absolutely destroyed. There had been a few people who were left from the Babylonians who allowed them to stay and keep the land a little bit just to keep it from being totally run over by animals in other countries. But the point is, is they came back to a city that all the walls were destroyed, all the lines of defense, and most importantly, the place where God's presence dwelled was destroyed. And so they came back 18 years earlier to when the book of Haggai was written, and they had been there kind of just going through the motions. They had started the temple within the first two years of them being in Israel, and within another two years, they had quit. And as we will read a little bit later, there was reasons to why they quit according to the book of Ezra and according to historians and commentators. But here they are in Israel for 18 years, and they had no vision. Today, maybe you are struggling to have passion to have zeal, to have vision, to have some kind of mission in your life. You're just kind of meandering around, if you will. Well, this, this series, though it be very short because it's only a two chapters in this book, this series is for you. This is God's calling out to you saying, I have a call for you. I have a vision for you. I have a mission for you. Whatever you want to call it, you have purpose. And ultimately, as we will see today, God's vision for you is to be in His presence. So let's get into it. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Now, you can try reading that for yourself. The governor of Judah and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, these people say... The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses, right? Your beautiful mansions, while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. Think carefully. You have planted much. But harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into bags with holes in it. The Lord of Armies says this 
Second time he says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills. Bring down lumber and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies I've withheld the dew, the land its crops. I have summoned drought on the fields and in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil, whatever the ground yields, on man and animals, on all that your hands produce. Now, before I go into this any further, why is the temple, God's house, so important in Israel? That is where God's presence dwelt. That's where His glory was revealed. It's where people connected to God. It was where they could be in union with Him, where they were viewed as holy and able to be in His presence. And so in this passage, we read all these excuses why they couldn't do it. Right, Haggai announces them. You complain about all these things. You harvest little. You have no food. You have no clothes to wear. You have no water. You have no money. You built your own houses, so you've been busy building your houses. But then, maybe the most painful excuse of all, it comes in this phrase. The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Time. It's not time yet. We don't have time. How often we say that in our culture today. We have no time. We don't have no time to do what's important or valuable. We don't have time to take care of ourselves and do self-care and to go to people who can help us to, to process all the things that are going on around us. We have no time for relaxation, for, for meditation, for reading scriptures, for prayer. We have no time. We have so many things that have to be done. Kids have to go places. We have to get ready to go on vacation. We get to vacation. We have no time to even stop and to relax and enjoy our vacation. The time has not yet come. How that must have hurt God. Imagine being God in that situation. The time has not yet come for us to build a house so that you and your presence can dwell there and we can be glorified within your presence and we can have communion with you, we can have relationship with you. It's so different in that time than in our time. The Holy Spirit can reside in us anytime, anywhere, at any place, but that was the place. Time has not yet come for us to build place for your presence where we can meet with you after 18 years of God saying what's going on guys I'm waiting now I want to backtrack just a little bit for just a spare moment because it's so easy for us to just totally write these people off isn't it like that's so lame <laughs> but there was really good reason 
And I want to take you back to the book of Ezra, where we read some of the painful things that led them to this place. There was good reason why 14 years earlier, they stopped building the temple. It hadn't always been like this. They were making excuses now. Back in the day, they had good reason to stop building the temple. And I want to take you there right now. This is Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 5. This is, in my opinion, a good reason. Now, maybe some people would say elsewise, and, and that's totally okay. I understand that everybody has their own perspective. But if I was living in the time of the Israelites coming out of captivity for 70 years and then walking into the promised land and looking around and seeing the desolation and saying, we got a lot of work to do, taking two years to kind of organize things and get things all where it needs to be, building up the walls, very important for them to build the walls because that's their only line of security when somebody tries raiding. I get that, right? I, I, I understand how what we're about to read could totally stop them from working. So here we are into year four of them coming back from captivity. They have been spending the last two years building this temple. Two years. <laughs> we have things go up in two months. They just finally got the foundation taken care of, and we're starting to build on the foundation of the temple. And so here it is. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple, these guys were old, right? Like, we're talking 70 years old. Earlier, they came out of captivity. Now they're back again. And they saw it. They wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. They were sad. They knew what the glory of the temple once was. And now they've seen it again. It's like we rewound the clock 70 years ago. And we saw them terrorizing our city, ripping the temple out of all of the gold and bronze that it had in it. We remember that, and this is what we got. They were sad. But there was others there, too. This is fascinating. Imagine being in that place at this time. You could put yourself in one of the elderly people or one of the young people. Here's the young people. But many others shouted for joy. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from the, those of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. So reason number one, they looked around and many of the elderly were discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged in life? You had this amazing vision of what God had in store for you and you get to reality and it's like, wow, this is it. Not what I had pictured. This is not the way I thought it would go. But then here comes the second wave. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ezra. Where the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esar Haddon of Assyria brought us here. Right? A lot of history there. After the Babylonians took them out, then there was placed in their people to take care of it. That was these people. But notice they said they were enemies. 
They wanted to be a part of this. They were part of the land for now 18 years. They thought they had a part in this, but they weren't Israelites. Right? They weren't from the, the tribe that were supposed to build. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, you may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people who had already, who are already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. And so there you have it. They had great reason to be discouraged. Originally, they had the temple that once was, that was beautiful, and now they're building this tiny little thing in comparison with no gold and no bronze, and it was just lacking so much. And so little had been done in two years. I mean, they just had the foundation and were starting to build on that. They were discouraged. And then the people who were in the land who displaced them, or the king displaced them with these people, thought they should have the opportunity to build with them. And then when they said no, then they got all the officials, and pretty soon, they were forced to quit. And then they sat 14 years doing their work. They lost the vision for what God had for them, the vision to be in his presence. They lost it. 14 years. Maybe you've been for 14 years wandering, maybe 40 years wandering. Maybe you don't even know the last time you had hope, you had vision for God and what he has for you. Think carefully about your ways. God told the Israelites twice. Think carefully. Think carefully. Think carefully. I get it. Relationships fail. Careers end. Sicknesses drastically change lives. Sometimes you can't get away from it. There's not a whole lot you could do. You, you couldn't change what God did or allowed. Maybe you feel like God has intentionally done this to you. Maybe you feel alone. There's so many different reasons for why we could have abandoned God's vision for our life. Life is not easy. Yet in the middle of it all, God continued to reach out to the Israelites, and he does for you as well. Consider. Consider. Think carefully about your ways. All this has happened in your life, but it hasn't stopped one thing from being sure, and that is God's vision for you you. He wants you to be in his presence where his, his glory is. 
question. What if Israel, and what if you had all of your resources met? What if your relationships were restored? What if all of your physical and emotional and you name it, whatever health you might be struggling with or have struggled with that has set you off course, what if all of that were just magically made perfect? You were healthy. Your resources were met. You had everything you need. Would you prioritize His presence? The reality is, is that when we have all of these things met, so often we forget about God. What has happened in America is so prevalent in Israel at this time. What led Israel to their captivity was the fact that they thought that they were so competent. They had done everything and forgotten God. That's what's happened in America. I think we parallel the Old Testament Israel throughout all the prophets. If you read Jeremiah and Isaiah, there's so much pointing to this. The fact that they relied on themselves. Friends, if all of your resources were met, would you prioritize God? Would you put him first? And maybe you would. This message isn't probably for you then, but man, even still, we can all struggle with this from time to time. Nobody's immune. And Jesus said this to, to his greatest followers, in fact. This goes to Mark 8, 34 through 37. It's a very popular passage that pastors read from all the time, but I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation, which is a fairly newer translation that... It, kind of brings out things a little bit differently that really hits sometimes right to the core. Now, this passage is written to Jesus' followers and would-be followers after he had done some pretty phenomenal things, healing people, like, magically, right? Like, only God could do. This was miracle-working stuff, supernatural. And Jesus looks to them and says, I have done all of this. You follow me but if anything happens, will you still follow me? And he writes to them, it says, or speaks to them, I should say, if you truly want to follow me, listen to this, you should at once completely disown your own life. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on things in this world to dictate your joy, to dictate your hope, your purpose. Disown from that. Listen to what I have for you. Listen to the vision that I have for you. And you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own as you continually surrender to my ways. He wanted complete abandonment of ourselves to him. For if you let your life go for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, if you give it all to me, if you desire my presence more than anything, if you line up with my vision to be close to me, you will ex you'll continue to experience true life. You want to find who you are. Give yourself to me. Go into where I am, where I dwell. But if you choose to keep your life for yourself, you will forfeit what you try to keep. 
relationships are well. They're restored. Financially, you have everything set up. You have your retirement ready to go. You have your health. You're emotionally, mentally perfect right where you need to be. You've got it all in line. You're good to go. You have all of that. But you've truly, you've forfeited true life. For what use is it to gain all the wealth and power, all the resources, all the goods of this world, with everything it could offer you, at the cost of your own life. And this is what I love. What could be more valuable to you than your own soul? What could be more valuable to you than your own soul? What is your soul? It's you. It's who you are underneath all of the flesh and blood. Who you are is absolutely the key to who God wants. He wants you. He wants to be in your presence. He longs for you. And in the book of Haggai, that's what he's calling out. He's like, I want you to be in my glory. My glory dwells in the temple. I want you to build that so I can be in relationship with you. I want you. I don't need a temple. I just want you. And this is, this is the way we've made it. But now, God's temple is your body. It's who you are. You dwell within him. And when you push him away and say, I don't want you. I don't want you in my life. I don't want, I want to take care of myself. I don't want to give up all that I have to you. I want to keep this to myself. I want my relationships. I want my money. Not that these things are bad, but when God gets pushed out for them, and you can't be happy and satisfied till you have them, you've disowned him. And you've lost your soul to things of this world. God wants you. He longs for you. So what did the Israelites do? We're not done with our passage from Haggai today. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Then the same guy, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. In the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. I want to stop there just for a second. They feared the Lord. Is this like we're deathly afraid that he's going to like destroy us and send us back into Babylon and slavery forever? Is he going to come in and slaughter us? What, what does the fear of the Lord mean? It's not being scared. You see, they knew God's heart. Again, if you go back to Jeremiah, if you go back to all the prophets before they got sent to exile, this is one of the few prophets we have of post-exile Israel. After coming back from from being in slavery. There was the, all the prophets that had written to the Israelites saying, come back, come back. Jeremiah, I mean, one of the greatest ones, come back, come back to your first love. Do what he calls you to. Be in his presence. Let his glory dwell within your life. They knew God at some point. 
They knew God's heart, that he was gentle, that he was long-suffering. He waited. He was crying out. He longed for them. He wasn't an angry God. He wasn't a wrathful God. He was a patient and gracious God. And so they feared him. They respected him. They knew their God. They wanted to be in his presence. And so they feared him. Then Haggai, verse 13, the Lord's messenger delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. He roused them. They began to work on the house of the Lord, the armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Within a few months, these people, after God called out to Haggai, they were back on their feet. They were doing the work of God. Such a beautiful thing. They responded out of respect. And what did God do? When they turned back to God, when you turn back to God, what does he do? He enters back into your spirit. He roused everyone's spirit. It was a heart thing. Notice this. So often we think of, of the Old Testament as, as works, works, works. And works gets you right in relationship with God. What happened here? Their spirits were moved. And they responded out of respect and love for God. And what did he do? His presence roused them. What does that mean? It means that it, it engulfed them. It came inside of them. It gave them passion again. It gave them peace. It gave them confidence. It was the favor of God that came inside of them and indwelt them. And they worked. You see, when we step out with a heart of love, it's not our works that do anything. It's, it's our heart. And then God infills us and gives us the passion and the desire to do it. His protection, His love, His joy, His peace, His confidence, His Everything fills you. Now, you might not feel all these bubbly, weird things that people talk about, but the fact of the matter is, is his presence gives you the ability to do what you're called to do. So today, God, more than anything, wants you to be in his presence. And when you take that step towards being in his presence, for them, it was to to build his temple where his presence would dwell. For you, it's just walking back into his presence, allowing him back into your life, and he will rouse you. What has he called you to do? To be in his presence. And from that, it doesn't matter where you go, he will be with you. God's not so much worried about those specific things that he once called you to, maybe it'll come to pass. Maybe it won't. But all those things don't really matter unless his presence is what you're after and it lives inside of you. And you're moving forward towards him. Because when you go towards him, he will guide you. 
And whatever you choose, he will be with you. As long as it lines up with his word, he's with you. So today, I want to encourage you. Where are you at? Have you stepped back towards him and his presence and allow him to fill you and guide you, to rouse you? Send his favor upon you. That is my prayer for you today. And will you allow me to pray? Father, I pray for that person listening. God, you see them right now. You know exactly where they're at. You know more than anything else their hearts. And God, if they were to wipe away everything that is in front of them right now, and they would just get down to the soul of who they are, they would really resonate with that statement. What profit does it gain if we get the whole world but lose our soul? That's what you want. You want them. And that's at the bottom of who they are, what you created them to be. From the first person you created, you put a, a, a spirit inside of Adam to want and desire you. And I pray that you would resurrect that heart in that person right now that's listening, who needs that reminder that I am a wanted being created in the image of God who desires my presence, who wants to be in my presence, who loves me deeply and immensely, wants to be connected to me. I pray, God, that they will have that passion and desire to step towards you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. And if you have questions or concerns, please reach out to us. Send us a message. Send us an email. Whatever works best for you so that we can help you connect to Jesus. We'll see you again real soon.